So there are clinicians, there are scientists, and then there are physician scientists. None of them can do what they do without any of the other components of the machine. If a scientist doesn't discover a particular receptor or molecule, a physician scientist wouldn't know where to begin putting it into the context of a disease. Uh, and if the physician scientist doesn't do that, the clinician wouldn't have a drug to test for a clinical trial either. That's Dr. Tejasev Saravat, today on Behind the Microscope. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Bujian Sadie, and this is Behind the Microscope, a podcast about the people and process behind the scenes of science and medicine. Our guest today is Dr. Tejasev Seravat, a postdoctoral fellow at Mayo who recently matched at the Yale Internal Medicine PSTP program for gastroenterology. Dr. Seravat is a first-generation physician who went to medical school in northern India where he found a passion for both medicine and science despite the lack of a formal physician-scientist pathway. He then made his way to the NIH and from there to the Mayo Clinic as a postdoc for Dr. Vijay Shah. He will begin his intern year at Yale this summer. Today, Dr. Saravat shares his story of finding science and medicine and his advice for overcoming the hurdles of entry into the U.S. medical training system and PSTP as a foreign medical grad. Without further ado, it is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Tejasev Sarava. Uh, fortunately, now there are a lot of resources around than uh, earlier uh, where people have access to information, have access to uh, you know, uh, wonderful people they can talk to, they can sort of guide uh, their um, uh, path when they're trying to get into residencies in a different country. Uh, there, there can be, uh, you know, vast multitude of reasons people choose to go through that pathway. Um, uh, and, and everybody has their own path, but there's just, it's, it's heartening to realize that there are more resources out there now than compared to some years ago. Uh, however, the same, I realized it's not true uh, if you're looking to go uh, into a physician scientist training program. Um, and it's just a path that has some inherent barriers uh, when it comes to um, you just gaining access to these programs uh, that, that I can describe in more detail uh, later. Um, I, I think uh, if, if I had to start from the very beginning, and again, my journey doesn't have to recapitulate other people's journey uh, who've gone through the same process and, and, you know, have been able to get into a PSTP like I have. I know that it's just a handful of people um, uh, every year that are able to do it uh, coming out of um, uh, foreign um, uh, medical schools. Um, and um, especially there are visa factors associated with it uh, and not just uh, your academic uh, achievements or, or talents, right? Um, so uh, if, if I were to start my journey in medicine, so I'm, I'm from India. Uh, I was born in North India. Uh, it's a beautiful city. It's a capital of two states uh, in North India at the foothills, uh, um, uh, the Himalaya mountains. Uh, I think everybody's heard of those. Uh, it's Chandigarh is, is the city. 
Uh, and um, that's where uh, I grew up. Uh, we go straight into medical school uh, out of high school. So you're 18 years old. Um, you you don't know much <laughs> about life when you're hurled into yeah. uh, a tough environment, um, which comes with its pros and cons. Uh, the pros being that you know you're young, you're uh, energetic, you, you it's easy easier to mold you. Uh, mm-hmm. But at the same time, some cons are that you might not necessarily be in a position to make the best decisions for your uh, career pathway. Um, I'm a first generation uh, physician uh, in my extended family. Um, so uh, already did not have um, a lot of uh, uh, support uh, from my background per se. Um, so the people who really helped me through medical school uh, were, of course, my colleagues, um, both who studied with me, uh, as well as uh, you know, people who um, studied before me there, who uh, managed to do good things uh, in their lives. And, and I was uh, able to talk to them, uh, get their input on many things and, and um, sort of try to filter that information and then see what pathway would be the best for me to choose. Uh, but a lot of it comes down to word of mouth. Um, and uh, uh, that's sort of how I started. Then I would say this was serendipity. Um, uh, before uh, this year, uh, I used to think that many things happen by luck, that I've just uh, you know, gotten lucky on many steps, uh, which is definitely true. Uh, but at the same time, there's been too many of such occasions uh, for me to now believe that it's just purely luck. Of course, it's not that. Uh, clearly, I've been doing things intentionally that ended up uh, being right decisions. Um, uh, I've made wrong decisions. But the first moment of luck, as I would have it, was uh, during third year of my medical school, uh, out of the uh, six years of school that we do uh, in India. So third year of medical school, I met this young uh, assistant professor who just joined uh, my medical school. Uh, he was an endocrinologist. Well, he is an endocrinologist. And um, uh, we decided to start on a small uh, clinical research project looking at um, uh, new-onset uh, hepatogenous diabetes in people with um, uh, liver cirrhosis. That's how I met the dean of my medical school at that time as well, who uh, is a gastroenterologist uh, with a focus on hepatology. So I, I started on that project, uh, um, uh, got really interested in research, uh, and at the same time realized the lack of resources that existed, especially um, within the medical system in India, uh, India is a developing country. Most of our resources, uh, rightfully so, are allocated towards direct patient care uh, because um, there is a vast uh, population that the hospitals need to serve um, just with regards to basic necessities um, uh, that are associated with medical care. Uh, So we don't have a ton of resources that can be allocated towards research. Uh, which is not an ideal scenario. And I hope that in time that will change. But right now, that's a reality. Uh, So um, thankfully, the project progressed um, uh, well. I uh, submitted my abstract to uh, the European Association for Study of Liver Congress, which was supposed to happen in Barcelona at that time. 
without realizing actually that you can only submit your abstract to one conference at a time. Um, and I said, oh, okay, well, I did that. <laughs> my my mentor said, oh, good for you, but now we have to wait before we get rejected and you can go to another, uh, uh, another conference. Uh, so I was like, oh, okay. Well, I didn't know that. Thank you for telling me. Um, so, but but a few months passed. Um, I have to say that Easel as a, um, a major uh, liver uh, organization is doing a lot to help young investigators. Mm. Uh, they had about uh, 200 uh, bursary awards that year that they mm. were uh, given out to young investigators uh, to just be able to attend the conference. Uh, so lo and behold, my abstract was accepted. I was able to get the bursary and I was able to travel to Barcelona, uh, which was great. And it was my first exposure to world-class research to world-class research uh, in terms of basic sciences, in terms of clinical sciences. Um, and, and, and that's when I realized for the first time how um, far ahead uh, people are thinking, how fast science uh, is transforming um, and, and the opportunities that are available uh, around us. Uh, so during that meeting, I, uh, I met, uh, someone who uh, would stay to be sort of a career mentor for me uh, is uh, Dr. Lorenzo Leggio uh, from the NIH. Uh, um, uh, he has a lab of his own. Uh, he's a really um, amazing uh, person. So uh, I, I interacted with him and, and he sort of opened my first door towards uh, an opportunity uh, within the United States. Um, so until that point, I had never really given too much thought about ever moving to the U.S., uh, but uh, I, I came to the U.S., to the NIH to do my rotation with him uh, uh, during final year of medical school, um, and, uh, uh, you know, more doors open uh, one after the other. Uh, so I was able to uh, go into hepatology rotations as well while I was there. I was able to rotate at Yale, as I said, with Dr. Boyer and, and uh, a, a lot of other um, uh, amazing uh, clinicians there. Uh, that's where I met uh, my to-be mentor, um, 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 Dr. Vijay Shah, who um, uh, is a world-renowned basic scientist, um, um, a leader almost in, in, in alcohol-associated uh, liver disease. Um, and I knew at that time that um, I, I was interested in alcohol-associated liver disease just by the virtue um, uh, of being from North India. Uh, and unfortunately, alcohol-associated liver disease is a big uh, problem uh, in North India. So I, I had sort of an inherent feeling that I would like to do something about it. Um, I, I heard... In that very meeting, uh, a talk from another, uh, you know, world leader in alcohol-related liver disease, uh, Ramon Batayer, who was uh, at UPMC. Now he's back in Spain, and he said that I was in residency when the um, uh, steroid trial first came out for treating Alcap. Uh, and since then, uh, not much has changed. So I'm looking at this room and I'm hoping that there's some of you who'd uh, 
you know, want to change that. Um, so, so that's how I met my mentor. That's how um, uh, I came to interview with him and and got to join the lab. Uh, I, I realized that not having access to a formal MD PhD pathway uh, in India, the track just doesn't exist. Um, I if I wanted to have a career in basic sciences, um, I guess uh, it would be great also to do a postdoc. That's uh, where the action usually is and then um, get to learn from um, working with my own hands and and along the way. So it was great. They took a chance on me and, um, you know, uh, it's a bilateral relationship. Um, we've worked well together with each other. Uh, and um, um, since, since then, I've just tried to uh, obtain hands-on training in things that I did not have. I will never forget my first lab meeting looking at a Western blot, um, thinking, oh, okay, well, I don't see what's up-regulated or down-regulated. It's just a bunch of, uh, <laughs> you know, black um, bars on, on a screen for me. Um, and, and uh, you know, my, my uh, boss is actually a really insightful guy. Um, uh, he pulled me uh, into his office uh, first couple of weeks uh, into my postdoc, and, um, and, and he sort of told me that, okay, this is how I felt. Because he's uh, also not an MD PhD, he's an MD who did a postdoc post graduation uh, from gastroenterology. So it's like, oh, I understand how you're feeling. Well, it'll be fine. <laughs> just, just do what you're doing, right? Um, I, I had support from uh, from people around here uh, that facilitated my learning while doing because that's how a postdoc would differ from a sheltered PhD program. Is that um, uh, you're you're not there just to learn. Uh, you're also there to produce, um, and and that's part of your job. So uh, you have to learn, but at the same time, there are certain requirements that you need to fulfill along the way so that you're benefiting the group that you're a part of. Uh, and I think that sort of sets the uh, journey apart for me as it would for a traditional PSTP candidate that uh, straight out of um, medical school, I was, what, 23, 24 years, uh, years old, you're uh, uh, in an environment now that's professional. You're in an environment where you're surrounded by people that know much more than you because they're um, seasoned postdocs. They're seasoned. Um, they've done PhDs from good places. They 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 know what they're doing. Um, so so that can be uh, mentally challenging, um, uh, professionally challenging. Uh, so, so I think once you overcome that, though, and and you make your own niche um, uh, in in the program that you work for, um, uh, I think things go much smoother after that. Um, you, you, there are so many minute things you need to learn, uh, not just doing experiments, but how to plan experiments, how to. Uh, write your results, how to present your results, how to uh, formulate uh, a hypothesis to generate your own project. Um, so so we can talk in, in more detail about uh, any of those, but uh, this is sort of what my pathway was up until uh, I applied for, um, the, for residencies, both categorical and PSTPs uh, this yeah. year. Yeah, uh, it's 
awesome story and like uh, so much to talk about there because um you know I, I think going back to just where you were in third year um so it sounds like there's just not there's not a formalized pathway for people to become physician scientists or to or to see that as a career trajectory in India um sounds like just because of the clinical burden is so high that that uh you know being someone who is trained in like medicine, uh, you know, you're kind of needed in the clinic as opposed to being in the lab. So how did you first get that exposure to your assistant professor who, who, you know, was interested in, you know, clinical research sounds like, um, did you just like meet him on a rotation? How did, how was that facilitated? And, you know, do you think there's a way to formalize that to make it, uh, you know, to give people in early stages. And I, you know, obviously I don't know a lot about the system in India, but even the system here, I think a lot of times we have this idea that the MD PhDs are going to be physician scientists, which I think is completely a, is a, is a false thing to, to have in people's minds. And so, you know, how, how did you get that experience? And do you think we can facilitate that for other people early in their medical training? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Uh, yes, there is no formalized uh, pathway uh, for students to become investigators, whether it be in uh, basic sciences or it be in uh, clinical research uh, in in general. So, uh, so how I got in first, how I first had contact with with my mentor, Dr. Yashseep Gupta. Uh, he he started uh, um, delivering lectures on um, uh, diabetes uh, as an endocrinologist, uh, and uh, he brought you know a lot of evidence based facts uh, to to, to uh, our classes. Uh, he was always his his lecture delivery was really good in the sense that he always started with presenting uh, epidemiology data. Uh, with regards to not just how uh, things are with the disease, but also where uh, it's headed. And and that sort of appealed to me. Uh, There were not many formal pathways, but I have to also thank the uh, Indian Council of Medical Research uh, that had a a small uh, research grant, uh, really small, it was just $200, which... Uh, at that time was a huge sum of money to me. Uh, it was just a, a, a appreciation that if you're doing something uh, more or something different, uh, then there is some recognition uh, to what you're doing. And uh, w- when I was awarded that amongst other students in my class as well, um, I I approached him and I uh, asked him if, if he would uh, think of it as a useful useful thing for his time to sort of guide me through this um, and it turned out that it was the best person I could have approached I mean I, I'm sure many of us feel the same way about our mentors but um, but that's how I felt he used to uh, sit with me for hours uh, in his office just teaching me how to look for articles on PubMed how to uh, correctly cite other people's work uh, and those things you really need um, uh, in a formative uh, uh, period of of when you're 
very early on in your uh, training. Uh, I think this holds very true that uh, your eyes really don't see what your mind doesn't know. Uh, so somebody has to first, uh, you know, tell your mind that this exists. This this is a pathway that you can follow, uh, which I feel unfortunately in India is the case that uh, many people would read a textbook and then just uh, take it at face value, uh, but never stop to think um, that there is work behind telling you that this cell exists uh, in uh, in the lining of your gut. You know, there's, this, there's been a lot of work behind that. And then that has taken somebody years and years in the lab to to figure out the receptors of that cell and and what kind of signaling programs a certain stimulus is having on it. But that's the first time I got exposed to it, and and uh, and I think that just with the burden of um, uh, studies during medical school and and our examination system is also very different than what we do here. Uh, uh, people do not get exposed to research how they should. Uh, and it would be amazing if if things were to somehow change, become more formalized, and at least people have access to information that can drive their decisions uh, before it's too late. Yeah, I yeah. agree with you. Yeah, I mean, I, I, just along those lines, kind of a more philosophical question, um, which you know I have my opinion on, obviously, but... In places where we need more clinicians, um, and in a lot of ways, this is the United States too, right? Uh, is there value in training physician scientists? Um, I think so. I think there is value in training physician scientists because uh, when we talk about hospitals, uh, when we talk about you know big organizations um, uh, that you know, everybody in the world has heard of. Uh, those organizations have also built a reputation through the years, um, uh, partly because of the, of course, clinical care that they've delivered, but in a lot of ways, due to the scientific discoveries they've made, due to, um, you know, the research that has come out of those places, I think that's a big driving factor of attracting better talent to your organizations. Uh, it's a um, it, it's a major driving force to more external funding that that you could bring into your institute, which may not directly benefit the patient population that you serve. But I think on a grand scheme of things, um, uh, it's essential. Um, and you know, one one example I could give of this uh, is um, uh, China. Um, China is also a developing country, uh, and uh, unlike uh, India, they've focused a lot on research over over the last uh, some decades. Um, you know, there are tons of um, students coming out of China, uh, MD PhD students that even come to the U.S. to to gain um, uh, expertise in some things and then uh, return, take it back to their country. Um, I mean, every every place has its pros and cons, but but I feel like driving science anywhere is what would lead you to become uh, a quote unquote global force in in anything that you wanted to achieve. Yeah, 
I think that was beautifully put. I I totally agree. I think we, I, I think you could simplistically think about that. Okay, well, you're training these people to be clinicians. You need more people taking care of patients. Like, why would you have them spending 80% of their time in the lab? But that it just neglects the value of what physician scientists bring. And I think you pointed out, like, it brings a lot of reputation, which attracts more talent. Um, and beyond that, it actually pushes forward how we're caring for patients. Uh, you know, I think we all want to think globally, we're going to make some big discovery, but I think the perspective of physician scientists, even in a like micro environment of a single academic center is important for how evidence-based are we? How, how much are we incorporating what we know about the basic sciences into uh, how we're caring for patients? Um, and I think sometimes, you know, I think simplistically you could forget about physician scientists. This, this is sort of integral, but maybe a, a little bit more difficult, nuanced uh, group to understand um, within the like infrastructure of medicine. So yeah, it was really well put. Um, and then just uh, to add another line on it is that um, having delved really deep into the disease that you're studying or the diseases that you're studying, I think also gives you um, a different perspective on how you view your patient. So uh, I think this is also a um, misalignment in thought that many people sometimes have that um, that, uh, you know, physician scientists uh, are traditionally just supposed to be viewed as scientists, which is just not true because, um, and this is something that I've used that uh, almost all the interviews I had is that to be a physician scientist, the word physician uh, is a part of it, right? Uh, because how I've seen this, uh, how, how I've realized and when, um, uh, th that this is true is because there are, in my opinion, and I could be wrong, it's just my opinion, that there are three key components uh, of, of this machine that is driving medicine and science. So there are clinicians, uh, there are scientists, and then there are physician scientists. I think none of them can do what they do without any of the other components of the machine. Uh, I think all of them have their own strengths. Uh, I think if a scientist doesn't discover a particular uh, receptor or molecule, um, a, physician's, uh, a physician scientist wouldn't know where to begin uh, putting it into the context of a disease. Uh, and if the physician scientist doesn't do that, the clinician wouldn't have a drug to test for a clinical trial either. Um, so in many ways, these lines are fuzzy, uh, but at the same time, uh, at least for myself, I've tried to tell myself um, that these are, you know, sort of things that you would be able to excel at uh, and, and make the best contribution that you can make to drive medicine forward, to drive science forward. And that's sort of how I, I think about it. Yeah, I think that's perfectly put. Um uh, it's interesting though. So this was another question I had when you were talking about joining the lab, uh, as a postdoc. Um, and 
how you, you know, you're, you're really thrown into an environment you've not really been in. I mean, you did some work, uh, but, but, you know, this is like full-time here with like all these other high powered postdocs with PhDs from other places. Um, how, what, how do you feel like your background training in medicine, um, equipped you to do that? And, and, you know, if it didn't maybe equip you to interpret a Western blot, how did it help you, uh, as a, as a postdoc and, and potentially what, what were some ga big gaps that you felt you had? Yeah. That's a very important question. So uh, I would give, um, uh, uh, credit also to, to my mentors here, um, uh, from the very beginning. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Vijay Shah has a big lab. Um, it's, um, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 people. And uh, he has other responsibilities, uh, administrative leadership. Uh, so he is a more hands-off mentor. Uh, but from day one that I started at Mayo, uh, my co-mentor, uh, Dr. Hermit Malhi, uh, who uh, is has been a phenomenal uh, 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 mentor to me, uh, who is sort of a different mentorship style where she... Uh, you know, really gets into the experiment that you're doing. She's going to help you troubleshoot it. So this uh, fusion of two different mentorship styles um, really, really helped uh, uh, my trajectory in the lab. I, I think without either component, um, I could have been lost in the very beginning. Um, but the fact that I had somebody that I could talk uh, differently to more, you know, visionary things, more high level things where um, we could discuss where the big picture of the project is going. But at the same time, having somebody who could guide me through um, the minutia of, of the experiments I was doing, while at the same time also giving me, you know, high level views, because um, she by herself is, um, is a world-renowned scientist. So, so I think that is the first uh, component of whatever um, uh, success I have had um, um, uh, or the things that I've been able to do. Uh, I think other than that, uh, I've had understanding of this fact that I do not have formal PhD training. And I have never shied away um, from asking for help I think that's a big component of somebody who joins um, as I have uh, in another lab later on in the future who, who listens to this podcast, I think should know that the biggest help you can give yourself is to uh, you know, not have uh, fear of, of asking people what you don't know, because everybody expects you to not know things when you join a new lab, regardless of whether you're a senior postdoc. If right now I were to join a new lab, it would take me a while to just get used to how things are done around here. So, so I think that was something that helped me a lot. Um, I think, uh, Another thing that I sort of did, which is non-traditional, and, and I don't know if it would help people, is that we have this corner on our gastroenterology research unit where everybody throws their old journals. <laughs> so you have a bunch of hepatologies, journal of hepatologies, gastroenterologists piled up that nobody cares about. So what I used to do is just grab three of them, 
and take them home uh, and, and just flip through them on the weekends. My goal was not to learn uh, science there. My goal was not to make a hypothesis out of any of them. I don't even know what year the journal was from. My goal was to say, okay, today we talked about uh, steatosis. So I, I want to see what people do when they're studying steatosis. I want to see what kind of stains they use. I want to see what kind of uh, you know genes they look for when they're doing qPCRs. I want to see uh, what kind of proteins you're supposed to uh, you know use for your validation experiments. Uh, and I think that foundation that I laid in the early onset of of my training was really important because not only, it helped me generate new ideas by myself, but it also proved to people around me that I had a certain standard of knowledge that they could rely on me to, to come up with ideas, to, to do things, uh, which is also important in professional labs, because again, you're not a protected student entity anymore. You're supposed to produce things. So people uh, need to trust you. People need to know that you can generate your own thoughts, right? Uh, so, so I think that's something that I did to help myself as well, which is highly recommended to anybody who uh, starts a postdoc without formal training. Um, yeah, that that's 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 what I would say. Yeah. yeah, I love this thing about the journals and the way you approached it, um, <laughs> because because I think you know that's kind of what this podcast is, and it's how I have thought about research is that the the process a lot of times is more important than the content. It's how you do things that makes what you do actually meaningful. And so that's what you were looking for in those journals. You weren't looking at content, you were looking at process. And, you know, uh, you know how, how do you design an experiment? What stains do you use? What, those are the things that make your results durable as opposed to you know, flashy and, uh, you know, something that's going to be obsolete in 15 years or, or, you know, not incredibly rigorous. Um, and you know, that's sort of what we want to, what I've always tried to do with this podcast is not talk about what, what's kind of science do you do, but like, how did you do it? How did you, what, what was the process that got you to where you are? Um, I, I think that's incredibly fascinating. I've never uh, thought necessarily to do that. I just like flip through journals and see, eh, what are these people doing uh, methodology wise? How do they present their results? You know, what's the structure of their um, uh, paper? Yeah, uh, I think you need to stick to your own strengths um, uh, as, as you alluded to earlier uh, as well, uh, is that, uh, you know, this is a big cliche. Uh, we always hear uh, bench to bedside um, uh, within science. I started thinking of it as the other way around, uh, bedside to bench. I think that's mm -hmm. how uh, a lot of the questions that I've asked in the lab have uh, have come from that approach, that my strength lies in the fact that I do have medical training um, and, and I can hopefully use that to drive a scientific question yeah um I, I think that's what most of my projects were based on also uh of course with a lot of vetting and and help from my mentors but at the same time um uh you know just just using my playing to my strengths uh basically to to come up with those questions which you know uh 
sometimes turn out to be important. Uh, other times uh, did not turn out to be important, yeah. which is how science is. Uh, and and this is sort of what I've done uh, whenever you know people joined after me um, um, in in you know within this institute uh, is um, I'd recommended people the same things. Uh, hopefully, somebody listened to uh, to my advice, and hopefully, mm-hmm. somebody even bettered my approach and um, and was able you know hopefully will be able to do better things uh, in a year. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's always the goal, right? Or should be. Uh, so I, I want to ask you about um, your uh, essentially did clinical training, then came and did postdoc, which is like very high powered basic science. Um, and then uh, now are applying or, you know, in the last year applied to PSTP programs. Um, I think that there is the sense that uh, PSTP programs are built for MD PhDs, right? Which which is false, which is totally false. I th- I I can't speak to the admissions committee's decisions or whatever, but you know it's a physician scientist training program, and if you look historically, physician scientists are a, a majority of them are. MDs, not MD PhDs. Um, and I think we are limiting the pool of people that would make great physician scientists by um, restricting ourselves to MD PhDs. You're a little bit different because you sort of did a PhD after your MD. So you have some like intense clinical training. Do you have any uh, insight into people who maybe are finishing a traditional MD program here or abroad who are thinking maybe I, you know, not maybe, but like I do enjoy the scientific side of medicine and I do want to be that person who's seeing something under the microscope for the first time, but has this mental barrier or actual barrier to um, getting into a program that's going to support them in developing as a physician scientist versus, you know, other programs that are going to teach you to be great clinicians, but maybe not give you that time or that support. Do you have, what advice do you have for people um, coming from that perspective? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, So, you know, as a, as a romantic, I could uh, say that, um, you know, you have to follow your heart, you have to follow uh, your passions. um, uh, Otherwise you would not be happy in life. Uh, while that's true to to a large extent, um, you also have to be practical um, and pragmatic with the with the approach that sh- you take in life. Because uh, early on in life, you're able to make decisions just for yourself. But as as you grow older, you have uh, external forces driving um, a lot of decisions that you're making. You need to stick to the practicality aspect of it as well. Uh, so. In my opinion, if somebody has gone through a tradition, and this is just my opinion, uh, if somebody's gone through a traditional MD program within the United States uh, and would like to transition um, uh, to a career in research or, or at least would like to explore that possibility, um, probably it's not the most ideal pathway to do a postdoc before you start your residency. I, I do not think that's the correct approach. 
because pathways do exist within many residency programs that allow for research in residency. Uh, I know Yale's definitely one of them, um, uh, but there are many other programs that would not give you a lot of time because of course you have to fulfill your internal medicine board uh, requirements uh, in terms of clinical training, but would allow you that opportunity to uh, you know, go sit in front of a microscope uh, would allow you to attend scientific seminars and meetings and meet and network with people who are successful physician scientists, which could hopefully help you then maybe transition to a research-oriented fellowship if that's what you were interested in. Um, uh, you know, you have T32 track uh, fellowships in uh, many academic hospitals, um, or uh, traditionally, um, people have also done postdocs after they've graduated from fellowship. So depending on uh, what people's goals are, uh, you could pick one, two, or more of these things that already exist within the system uh, to help you get there. Uh, when it comes to people from abroad who are um, hoping to come to the U.S. to to train um, um, uh, to uh, you know do their residencies or fellowships in the U.S., um, I think uh, there is a certain barrier that needs to be crossed uh, with regards to um, th th there are <laughs> many barriers. Uh, uh, which you know, not all of them are are, are correct. Uh, which you know, we don't need to get into in more detail. But but I would like to say that in many ways uh, there is this subliminal bias that exists um, uh, in in many people that just because we do not recognize the name of this medical school or uh, just just because we don't recognize X Y and Z, um, this person would not be reliable enough then everything you do is sort of amplified. A single mistake you make because of that bias uh, is, you know, uh, everybody looks at it in a different manner than, than they would if they knew you were from, you know, prestigious school XYZ, right? Um, uh, and, and that's a sort of barrier you need to surpass if you want to, to be able to do what you want to do in life. Um, if if you want people to notice what you've done, if you if you want uh, to have access to opportunities that you're looking for, because at the end of the day, I feel like this is something that I don't agree with because I heard this before from uh, certain people that oh you don't you never know what the motivation is for this person to look for this job, like mostly somebody who travels you know five six thousand miles away from home is you know coming in hot is pretty motivated you know <laughs> already so 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 that's what i think uh and i think uh if you're genuinely interested in a career in academia uh doing a postdoc is actually a really good pathway uh for people to follow uh because it gets you to uh you know the kind of universities uh, or programs that you're looking for, which you which would be able to provide you the resources that at least I came here for, because my whole purpose of moving to the U.S. to get the rest of my training 
was the fact that I needed those resources to be able to do the things that I wasn't able to do back home. Um, so uh, that is a practical aspect of it that I feel like if you are genuinely interested in a career in academia, you make that decision. And while it's not a traditional path, so you'd get discouraged um, on many steps, you will not have a certain figure you can uh, look up to, to say, okay, this is what my pathway is supposed to look like. That doesn't exist for you. So it's scary. Uh, on many steps uh, because you're just walking in this tunnel and there's just no light at the end of it. Uh, so these are careers of faith, careers of hope in many ways, many ways that you believe in the system, you believe uh, uh, in the uh, organizations that you'll be working for, you believe in the mentors that you'll be working with. And you sort of go in with that mentality that, that I'm going in, I believe in what I want to do. I, I think I will be able to do it if if I get the correct opportunities uh, and and get uh, at the end of the tunnel uh, where finally I am able to break into the system because uh, that sometimes is is very hard for somebody um, you know who who comes who's sort of quote unquote an outsider into the system right uh, so so that's I I would say was the biggest barrier uh, is. Mm -hmm just not having that well-furnished pathway for you. Mm -hmm. um, um, yeah. Yeah. That was amazing. Totally. I, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, there's barriers, to, unfortunately mm -hmm. for everyone, but it's amplified, right? It's mm -hmm. amplified if you're from another country or you graduated particularly graduated med school from another country. And you're right about this bias that, that, um, you know, it's, it's present at every level of higher education. And, and when you go to get an academic job, right. It's, it's there, we have a lot of this, like, Oh, you're a Yale person. You're a Harvard person. You're a, a Mayo person or whatever, you know, and it's not representative of the, type of person that you are you know mm -hmm. the type of the the what you bring to the table is not represented by what institutions you've um uh attended you know so yeah i think that was really well put i want to talk in our you know last 10 minutes or so about um just your your application process to pstps what advice do you have for people because i think that is where there's probably a lot of barrier to getting um uh to get past you know probably for categorical and for pstp so what was that process like for you what advice do you have for people particularly people who graduate med school somewhere else who you know want to do their uh, residency training here in the united states yeah so uh i think you've had some wonderful speakers uh on the pod podcast who have talked more about um you know, the pathway that um, a, a United States uh, medical graduate would take um, and, and not having gone through that pathway, I think I'll focus a bit more on the uh, foreign graduate pathway. Um, and I would like to start actually um, where you ended the previous comment, uh, which was about looking for academic jobs because this is something that I did not realize going into the process even 
is that how important it is for physician scientists training programs to choose candidates that not just fit well with them as part of their clinical training, but they can also be people that potentially they would like to retain um, after investing so much in them uh, in the future. And unfortunately, a lot of international graduates, not everybody, but a lot of international graduates um, uh, are on on visas. Uh, And there's just no possibility sometimes for them to be retained at a particular institute after they've graduated because you know there's some some uh, legal barriers there which programs cannot overcome so regardless of what the intentions uh, uh, are how how good the intentions are from the program or from the program director how good a fit you are for the program uh, if the mission of the PSTP is to have somebody who can be retained at the program after training, you would not be um, uh, a good fit for them, regardless of everything else, because it's just something that nobody would be able to overcome at the end of the day. Um, So uh, that's specific for PSTPs, though. That's not necessarily the case for categoricals. Um, Categorical programs traditionally do and from my understanding, do not care about this. Um, and again, I could be biased uh, because based on the interviews that I was able to, um, um, you know, the places that I was able to interview at, those places already did not have a lot of the biases that maybe other places would have. So so, so my answer could be biased here, but uh, at least I never got a sense from anybody that... Um, that they had any qualms about me not having a PhD title at the back of my name. Um, in in fact, I was told the exact opposite uh, because um, just just for my future goals, I, I thought about it sometimes. That oh, well, what if I could pursue a PhD? Uh, maybe I would like to do it uh, during my PSTP years, um, but but I wasn't. Um, you know, I, I didn't lose any value, let's say, uh, in my interview process b- because of that. So uh, the the other thing that I learned um, was that not a lot of resources exist um, with the application process. The application process for PSTPs differs quite a lot from, from categorical um, residencies. Everybody has their own um, uh, requirement of a supplementary application. So be prepared that you might need other letters of recommendations that are not a part of your ERAS application because you go in thinking you need four letters of recommendation to, to make up your residency application. But at the same time, you might need two more for a certain program. You might need to describe your research in more detail at another program. Uh, another program would ask for um, you know, names and contacts of references that they could contact um, and then talk about you. So be prepared that even after the residency applications are submitted, there's a whole lot that's left to be done over you know the subsequent weeks for you to submit all your applications for the PSTPs. Uh, be prepared uh, as well as foreign graduates um, that financially you might have to uh, also apply to 
uh, a higher number of programs uh, because you know that's traditionally uh, what has happened. Uh, at the end of the day, you know, for me, uh, I, I think about it now that oh, maybe I could have applied to you know lesser number of programs because you just don't know going in. Everybody's so stressed. Everybody's so anxious. Everybody. Um, you know, imposter syndrome is very real uh, in medicine and science. Um, so I I actually ended up applying to a really high number of programs uh, all across internal medicine. Um, I also actually applied to uh, pediatric physician scientist pathways, uh, just again, based on a practical approach that uh, my interests um, definitely lie somewhere within internal medicine or pediatrics, but my ultimate goal is to uh, be able to get funding for my science and then be able to pursue a gastroenterology hepatology pathway. So, so there are many things. So to talk to your uh, mentors, especially uh, talk to uh, you know people around you uh, that have gone through some of these things. Uh, there's somebody actually in my lab, Meng uh, Fei uh, Liu, who was um, a big supporter of my applications. You, to find somebody like that who can read your personal statements. Uh, she just joined actually, as luck would have it, as faculty in uh, at Yale a few weeks ago. So I'm going to meet her again. But, <laughs> uh, but it was someone really important in my application period uh, as somebody who could read my personal statements, who could say, oh, you could improve this. You could say that because I know what you've done. Uh, Find people who, this is very important, find people who are six or seven years ahead of you uh, in their training. Uh, find people who are entry-level uh, attendings and talk to them uh, about, uh, you know, how would you uh, see this program or, or how, so I was asked this, what, what do you think this means? Or... I'm trying to rank my programs and I think that this program would give me A, B, and C benefits. Do you see it that way? Uh, or what approach would you take? And then it's up to you to you know, uh, assimilate all that information, digest it, uh, and, and filter it down in a way that you know what is the right advice and what isn't, because you don't necessarily need to follow all the advice. But for me, it was extremely helpful to talk to people uh, th that, you know, just could show me things that I was not thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. I think we, do, we a lot of times when we start this journey, we're uh, under the impression that you're going to do it under your own power. And it doesn't matter who you are. That is not how it's, that's not possible. This is a team sport. So, well, thank you so much for your perspective and for coming on the show and, and sharing all of this stuff we, you know, haven't talked about a lot on the podcast. And I, I think it's super important um, because, I mean, the ultimate goal I think all of us have is how can we increase the physician scientist workforce and bring people from diverse experiences and backgrounds into the into the physician scientist workforce because that's ultimately how we're going to solve these big complex problems. This is alcoholic hepatitis, uh, you know, that we're still treating with steroids. We need, we need like all sorts of, of people. And I think that our systems are built a little bit to filter out a lot of these people. And that sucks. 
Um, no, so. thank you for thank you for having me. Um, I know you have a you know very wide listenership, um, so I would encourage anybody who uh, thinks what I've talked about was was something important to get in touch with me if they wanted to and and you know see if I can help them out in any way um I know you must have had the same feeling but I'm very excited now to start the next part of my journey um, yes and uh, and then go from there yeah well thank you all right folks that's our episode for this week really really grateful to have met and had the opportunity to talk with Dr. Saravat Give him a follow on Twitter, at Tejasev Saravat. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share us with others you think would appreciate this content. If you have time, leave us a review on iTunes or Spotify. And for more from the team here at Behind the Microscope, head to our website at www.behindthemicroscope.com. Behind the Microscope is executive produced by Joe Banke, Carrie Jansen, Michael Sayeg, Nielsen Wang, and me. Our faculty advisors are Dr. Mary Horton, Dr. Brian Robinson, Dr. Talia Swartz, Dr. Chris Williams, and Dr. David Schwartz. And I'm Bijan Sadie. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.